0: Good afternoon, everybody. Good to be with you all again. I promise I won't be jetting out of here like I did last. I do have no flights to catch. So I apologize. Uh, it, is a, it is a joy to bring the word, to commune and have fellowship with uh, you guys. And I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, Christ being our high priest. Let me get this setting together before it shuts down on me. Uh Okay. Got it. All right, there we go. Damn. Yeah, I'm in low power battery mode. Let's pray and we'll dig into it. Lord, we thank you for such a wonderful opportunity that you've given us to come together, to pray, and to sing, to read scripture uh, to sit under your word father and all we ask Lord is that uh, you would soften our hearts and that you would open up our minds and our ears and our eyes uh, to see you God and you alone uh, to uh, see your and hear your implanted word um, that we wouldn't just be merely merely hearers of it God but we would become doers um, that we would be light in a dark place that will be salt in an unflavorful place father Um, bless our time here together may you be magnified and may you be glorified it's in christ's name we pray amen Amen. Amen. Uh, hebrews chapter 4 14 through 16 and i'm gonna read this text for us It says, and since then we have a high priest, excuse me, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hold fast your confession and and approach the throne with boldness. That's the title of this sermon, Hold Fast Your Confession and Approach the Throne with Boldness. Uh, Has there ever been a time in your life Uh, When you were down, or as you pointed out Josh, grieving, you were in need. Discouraged, depressed, many if not all of us have experienced some sort of hardship in this life. Whether it be mental, emotional angst, physical ailments, financial woes. And if none of those categories fit any of you, uh, the one thing that we all have experienced is A spiritual deprivation due to the weight of sin. However, no one in their right mind wants to stay in those circumstances, whatever they may be in. No one wants to be in hardships 24-7, 365 days a year. Nobody wants to deal with that. You want to get out of it. We want relief. Now, the question is, in pursuit of that relief, In pursuit of that relief from that predicament did you seek help and wise counsel did you attempt to resolve it yourself I'm not talking about a situation when you had the resources when it was easy to fix it all by yourself I'm talking about that time when you didn't have it all the time when you don't have it see that situation when you needed assistance but you were too afraid to ask Maybe because you were unsure of uh, how to go about asking for it, that could have been the reason why you didn't. Uh, Ask yourself why you felt apprehensive. Was it pride? Was it shame? Did you fear being rejected or becoming embarrassed for asking for help? You didn't want to be seen as a beggar or a needy person. Maybe you didn't want all your flaws to be exposed due to the fear of people knowing that you don't have it all together or perhaps uh, we thought that we couldn't be helped that our issues were far too great for anyone to handle friends, not if, if not all of us most of us in this room have been in those scenarios before some of us may even be in them now but there is no doubt that we will always be there in the future See, this tension that humans feel when in need of help is not an inessential matter. See, it's not foreign to the common man. It's very natural. See, God has uniquely designed every one of us in such a way that we will always be in need. More specifically and primarily that we would be forever in need of him. David penned in Psalm 63 Oh, God, you are my God. Honestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh thanks for you. But then here lies the problem as it relates to being in need. We don't always ask, we don't always seek, and we don't always approach. We get entangled in our pride. We get entangled in self-pity and self-condemnation, which results in taking our eyes off of God, who was the glorious giver and sustainer of all that we stand in need of. But we got to remember that we don't wrestle against this flesh, and we don't wrestle against this blood, but against spiritual forces of all evil places, in the heavenly places, rather. So when we think... It's us, that's the problem, or that it's them, that's the problem. And that it's us who can correct the problem. Well, that's actually Satan. Using us to get in our own way. Lowering us off the path of righteousness hoping that we would remain in this state of self-centeredness and stagnant, never seeking the all-powerful and supreme father who rules and reigns over every single part of our lives because he cares for his children. Mm. So what's the remedy to bridging this man-made gap between the helpless and the helper? Jesus. Simple as that. Simple as that. Jesus. So let me give you three main bullet points. Three main bullet points for this sermon. One is to remember and believe. Remember and believe. Secondly is to hold on tight. And then thirdly is to pursue with confidence. Pursue with confidence. So this first point, remember and believe. Why is this first point to remember and believe? I'm going to take you through some scripture real quick, because in the previous verses in chapter four, two through three and six through seven. And then verse, uh, verse 11, it reads that like this for two through three for good news came to us just as it did to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter the rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they should not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Six through seven. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterward, the word in the words of already quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And now, verse 11, he says, let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. See, we see that even though they heard and were reminded they did not believe and therefore did not enter his rest. See, this is a uh, this is a description of a spiritual rest. No longer having to labor on your own or to achieve a personal righteousness before God because Christ has done that on our behalf. See, according to John chapter 3, verse 17, it says, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then you got 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness for the unrighteousness, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. See, by sacrificing himself for us on the cross, he took the punishment for all of our sins at once, which made him the ultimate sacrifice, once and for all satisfying the demands of God's justice that God's justice required. See, hence the point of needing to remember and believe, because we need to remember and believe what? That Jesus is a great high priest. We see this in verse 14. What is a high priest? A high priest would uh, mediate or intercede on behalf of the nation of Israel, offering sacrifices. So that their sins might be forgiven. It's called the day of atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. See, there were some Jews who remained, uh, who who claimed rather that Christianity had no priesthood like that of Aaron. Aaron was a brother of Moses and the first high priest of the Hebrew nation. But Jesus was and is superior to the priesthood of Aaron, both in his character and also in his work. See, these are two very important distinctives because notice the adjective great, great exalts Jesus's person and his office. Great elevates Christ above all the Levitical priests of the Jews and matches the fact that he has gone through the heavens in verse 14 in his high priestly function into the holy of holies into the very presence of God. See, just like in the Jewish tabernacle, the high priest passed from the altar that was in the outer courts, went in and through the holy place, and from the holy place goes beyond the veil of the holies of holies into the presence of God. So, our great high priest, Jesus, in a far more exhausted way, proceeded through what we call the created heavens into the presence of God. See, what we see next in verse 14 is that Jesus is also, not only is he called the great high priest, but he's also called the son of God. I'm just walking y'all through the text. See, this statement identifies the historical Jesus as our high priest. It also presents Jesus as one who perfectly combined humanity and divinity in his ministry. And he did it for the lost sinners. See, his, his human name was Jesus. But in reality, he was the Son of God. The mentioning of his name Jesus calls to mind his incarnation. It calls to mind his life. It calls to mind his sufferings. It calls to mind his death here on earth. And then the Son of Man, this reference expresses his deity. So, what the name Jesus and the Son of God both tell us is our great high priest is infinitely great in his person. And also in his office. You might be mindful of this. Philippians chapter 2 says it's best in verse 6 through 9. It says, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but yet entered himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Remember and believe. Believe what? That Jesus is our great high priest. The second point is hold on tight. Hold on tight. Because Jesus is our great high priest, we can hold fast to that faith That we profess. Because he's a high priest. We can hold fast to that confession. We can hold fast to that faith. Holding to that faith. Does also. It requires some determination. On our part. Because we're up against so much. In our culture today. We're up against so much in this world. In this society. In these neighborhoods. Jobs will pull on you. School pulls on you. Uh, People pulls on you. They tug everywhere. Other responsibilities and efforts will pull from all sorts of directions in your life. But in the midst of the pulling and the tugging, the the competing for your attention, we better learn how to take the time to bless the Lord in the midst of it all. What does he say? Psalm 103. And forget not all of his benefits. And then he goes on to say in that 103, Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like eagles. He says, forget not all of that. And so as it relates to holding tight, the greatness of Jesus as our high priest provides us this incentive to make the commitment to draw near to him. I mean, why wouldn't you want to draw near to somebody that gives that much? so that you can keep on getting. Think about that. His greatness entices us to get close to Him. See, we're, we're naturally drawn to greatness, aren't we? I mean, you can think about some people, presidents, sports figures, some musicians, some other artists, celebrities of all sorts. All these people of influence, we are naturally drawn to, we gravitate toward their so-called greatness. I mean, if LeBron James came in here, you would probably have some sort of high, brother. It gives us a sense of euphoria, this excitement, almost like a high. But that high of meeting someone is temporary. See, the impact is very short-lived. Yet, the greatness, the exaltation, humanity, and deity, all these traits of Christ are everlasting. And it encourages, us, it encourages us to seek Jesus' help under any trial and any test. It should, rather. And so we need to hold fast to that confession. But then the question is, how do we hold fast to that confession? How do we hold fast? If his greatness entices us to hold on, to draw near to Christ, and we want to hold on, but the question is, a brother, how do we hold on? How do we not fall off the steering wheel? Verse 15. how can we hold tight to that faith of our confession well what has God done to make this possible I believe verse 15 answers the very question the writer of Hebrews already declared the ability of Jesus to help the tempted so if you go to chapter 2 of Hebrews verse uh, 18 it says for since he himself was tempted In that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He now states negatively what he just earlier stated positively. See, why would he change from a positive statement to a negative statement? Well, maybe he tried to deal with some people who felt that Jesus was too distant from human need. See, here he states three facts about Christ. Which would help his readers know that Christ was no stranger to helping uh, struggling humans. That he was no stranger uh, at all to the suffering. See, this is how you hold on tight. This is, this is why he's talking about this. First, you can hold on tight because Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Yeah, yeah. See, he's able to identify with our infirmities. Weaknesses is, uh, is broad enough to include any form of human stumbling, bubbling, or failure. All of it. Christ has sympathy for the needy. See, Matthew tells us how Jesus, when he saw the crowds, had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And then in Luke chapter 7, he sees this widow about to bury her only son. Sensing her pain, says his heart was overflowed with compassion. And he approached that funeral procession and resurrected that young man. He sympathizes with us. And he never sympathizes without action. And not only does he sympathize, but then secondly, if you might think, well, he's Jesus. He, He don't know anything about what I'm going through. The text says that he has been tempted in every way. Just as we have. See, this statement may mean that he faced the full range of temptations we face. However, it does not mean that he met each specific type of temptation that we face. You can think about these categories. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Every sin common to man will fall under those three categories. And the dose of those three categories in some form or fashion fell on Jesus. If you go to his time in the wilderness. See, because Jesus never yielded to sin, I think we know that he faced more intense temptation because he never yielded. Well, why do I say that? Well, if we actually yielded for every every single sin that came our way, we would feel that sort of tension. We would feel that intensity. But most of the time, many of us just say yes to sin before Satan even throws his arrows at us. Am I right? I know I did. Before he can hurl anything, any arrows, we already said yes to it. But yet he resisted until uh, he broke the power of Satan according to Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 14. And then thirdly, Christ was without sin. He was without sin. Jesus was... Completely a human being. For he became like his brothers in every way. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Question. Must a person experience sin in order to be human? Well no. That's an obvious answer no. You ain't got to experience sin to be human. Jesus had no sin or deceit in his life. According to First Peter uh, chapter 2. See, Jesus could have chosen to sin by greek, excuse me, by giving to the temptations by Satan through hunger, through his desire for acclaim, or for the lust of power. The fact that he chose not to do this shows that he lived out the condition of sinlessness. He battled constantly with Satan's temptations and claimed victory in the struggle with temptation. If Jesus had sinned by surrendering to temptation, he would, he would have needed an atonement. He would have been no better than the, high, than the old high priest of old who had to offer sacrifices on their own sins. See, he would have lacked the qualifications to secure redemption for all of us. Any sins in Jesus' life would have made his sacrifice unacceptable. Now, some of us... Uh, we need to wash our minds of the notion that the question I posed later, earlier, about do you need to see in order to be seen as human. we got to wash our minds of the notion that uh, the only people that can relate to us and give us any type of wise counsel are the ones who have gone through everything we have. Experienced life exactly how we have. Yet Jesus experienced it. He, he, he was tempted by it, but yet he didn't do it but in order for us to say hey man he don't know what I'm going through because he hasn't been through it let me go to somebody else they can be a bit arrogant and they can be a bit foolish on our behalf because they have some stuff to offer us you don't have to have experienced everything in life to know what's good and what's bad and what's good and what's bad cancel and then on the flip side of that those of us who have been blessed not to go through life's blender shouldn't turn away from those who have because they have much to offer, as, uh, offer us as well. Because all of sin and all are false, short of the glory. See, all of us are equal at the foot of the cross. And so we're all capable of mutually encouraging each other, just not perfectly. Mm-hmm. Okay. All except for one. Our sinless Savior. See, Jesus, our sinless Savior, provided for us a perfect redemption. His victorious experience with temptation provides sympathy. It provides encouragement and victory for us in our temptation. If we hold on to it. See, our few victories over temptation doesn't always make us more sympathetic toward one another. Nor does it always spur us to encourage each other because we're damaged goods. We're flawed. We're in perfect bodies waiting on a new body to soon come. So knowing that Christ has been tempted, knowing that Christ has been tried, knowing that he's been tested, just as we have, but yet without sin, we have to allow that truth to comfort us. We have to allow that truth to soften us. It needs to soften us toward God, and it needs to tighten our grip on that confession. We got to hold on to that very truth. That's why Paul says to examine ourselves daily to see whether or not we're in the faith. But We have to remind ourselves of that. And we have to try to believe that. And so third point is pursue confidently. Pursue confidently. We see that in verse 16. Given the fact that we have a sinless Savior, what can we do? What should be our response? First, we must approach. This word is used in Hebrews chapter 7 in describing their movement into God's presence. We ought to come to God with all the reverence and awe which his worship that demands. We got to approach. But then what do you approach? Well, we approach, we come to the throne of grace. So we approach a lot of things in life. We don't necessarily approach the right thing in life. This is the right thing. This is a a reverent reference to God's presence. See, it is the place where God gives out his free favor. The term describes an attitude more than another place. This seeking sinner will find this throne of grace (laughs) is neither Christ. See, the throne of grace is not Christ, nor the throne of Christ. But it's the throne of God. That's what it is. The expression is not intended to suggest the throne uh, which is on the uh, upon the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. No, but the throne of God in heaven. See, it's the throne of grace because from his throne, from there descends to us his grace, which is shaped through Christ the Son, enthroned at the right hand of God. That's where Christ remains. That's why it's the throne of grace. Because he sits at the right hand of the Father, and so we approach. We approach with reverence, the right way. We approach the throne of grace. That's the aim. That's the direction. And then we have to approach with uh, the attitude of confidence. We approach with an attitude of confidence, because although we must approach God with reverence, we can also enter into His presence. With freedom and without fear. The term describes this boldness based on an awareness that God has all the grace that we need. He has all the grace and the mercy that we stand in need of. See, it is the attitude of a customer coming to a store. You're looking for a certain item. You know what's going to be there because it's always abundantly stocked. Ain't nothing worse than going to a store and not having what you want. And then you have to go to another store and then they run out of it. Or they got the wrong size. Anything like that. Yeah. You ain't got to worry about that with God. Everything that we need is stocked abundantly. Amen. He never runs out. Amen. And the fourth and the sub point. We come for the purpose of obtaining mercy and grace. We come for the purpose of obtaining mercy and grace. God's mercy prescribes pardon for all of our many failures. Pardons all of our failures. His grace provides strength for the demands of the service that he calls us to. You won't experience the grace of God, the fullness of the grace of God, I should say, and the fullness of the mercy of the grace of God, if you're not in the will of God. In order to experience the fullness of his grace and mercy, Try being in his will. Try being in his service and see what that feels like. And then you will see exactly what it doesn't feel like when you're not doing it. That's how we experience that. Provides a strength in the demands for a service. Why? Because the most important duty of the high priest of the Old Testament was to conduct the service on the Day of Atonement, the 10th day of the seventh uh, month of, the, of every year. This is why His grace provides. See, only He was allowed to enter the most holy place and go behind the veil to stand before, the, the, uh, before God. Having made a sacrifice, For himself and for the people, he then brought the blood into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled it on the mercy seat on God's throne. According to Leviticus chapter 16, the priest did this to make atonement for himself and the people for all of their sins committed during that year. But that was only once a year and only a certain qualified person could atone for them. However, this is the this is the blessing. This is a, the joyful part. This is the thankful part, right here. However, we no longer have that restriction. Amen. We no longer have that boundary. Sacrifices are no longer needed. Justice has been satisfied because Jesus Christ became the ultimate sacrifice. His shed blood on the cross. He died and was in a buried tomb on the third day, got up from the grave, become the sufficient atonement for all of our sin. The veil which only the priest was allowed to go behind was now torn because there is now no need for a high priest. Christ is now our mediator. He is our sympathetic high priest. He is the only way to the Father, and we can go to him daily, boldly, broken, blemished, imperfect, unashamed. Amen. Why? Because he told us so. Amen. So that he could give us that mercy and grace in time of need. That's why. Thank you, Lord. And I'll leave you with this charge from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 4. It says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain, for I'll deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Hold fast your confession and approach that throne of grace with boldness that is only found in Jesus Christ. So, beloved believers, hold fast to that confession. Because it's never going to leave. But for our unbeliever friends. They got to hear that very truth. And understand. That what they're looking for. Whatever that satisfaction is. Whatever emptiness they're trying to fill. That void. Is only going to be found in Christ. And they can fill it. By approaching his throne of grace. Repenting of their sins. And following and taking on Christ. As their Lord and Savior. That's the message that we got to proclaim. That's the message that we got to uh, live, but we can only live it if we believe it and if we hold on tight to it. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for this reminder out of Hebrews 4, Lord, that Christ is our great high priest, that his sacrifice was the ultimate atonement, God, and that we know that you never run dry on any of your blessings of, of grace and mercy, because any time we need a God, you're going to give it to us. And all we got to do is approach your throne of grace and ask for it with boldness and unashamed. And we love you for that, Lord. Thank you for such a great reminder. It's a simple reminder, and yet we can complicate it. But God, help us to uh, see it for what it really is. What a joyful blessing and an easy approach, God. Uh, we have an easy pathway through you now because of uh, our big brother, Jesus. Amen. Hope us to hold on tight, Lord, to that. to Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, brother.